who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ah, live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area, following program produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. I am the legendary Burl Bear man sitting next to me is... Fact checker and co-host, Mark C.G. Boyer. Hello. Yes, pleasure to have you with me again. I was reading some of the reviews of our program online, and I found a couple of nice ones. <laughs> uh, awfully rare, I would say. Yeah. Well, the ones that weren't complaining about my dreadful sense of humor and uh, your coughing. <laughs> and choking. And chip-chomping. Yeah, chip-chomping. The, the outstanding benefit of the program, they said. Not, not to mention misogyny. Oh, yeah. I've been misogyny myself all morning. <laughs> no one can see that on the radio. They uh, said one of the outstanding features of the program is that being as it's hosted by a true crime writer and true crime writers call in, they get to hear people talk shop, which true crime fans find fascinating. Interesting. Doesn't take much to thrill them, huh? <laughs> no, well, they could go to Canada for another, you know, webcast. Yeah, that's why we got uh, Ron Francella. <laughs> we figure we'll please those people today. <laughs> Welcome back, Ron. You know what? what? I I forgot how much I missed being here. <laughs> <laughs> Most people can remember how much they, they were mad that they missed throwing things at us. <laughs> <laughs> It is a strange program. Some people don't understand the uh, the ambiance of the, this place, which is an 1876 Virginia City style bar. The dynamics, if it if we could go in that direction, yeah, yeah, okay. But you paint a colorful picture. Yeah, it's a building Matt Allen's backyard, and that uh, is Shadow Man is your latest book. Excellent book. Just came out too. Yeah. Now uh, two weeks ago. And I imagine it's already selling like proverbial paperback books. 
Well, it is. I mean, going right out the door of, uh, you know, used booksellers near you. (laughs) People are turning them back in as fast as they buy them. (laughs) That's right. You know, it's it's interesting to me that uh, it's partly the historical element, the, the forensics. It's the first case where the FBI issued a uh, criminal profile. They were still monkeying around with it at the time, and they thought this was an interesting case to start, just to see. It was low risk, they thought, at the time. But I also thought that it it has all those elements that I'm looking for in a story uh, that, that that are fairly universal they're not it's not just a an exploitive uh, true crime story with a lot of ghastly things going on it 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 has you know a mother's grief it has the persistence of these uh, investigators but it also kind of touches against yours and mine and maybe not Burl here in the dark um, so it, it had all those elements so uh, can you describe what profiling is and how law enforcement uses it to catch the bad guys sure it, it Today, there's hardly a primetime TV drama or movie mystery or even crime book that doesn't feature profiling in some form. And it's easy to think that cops have always been using this. But in fact, it's less than 50 years ago that these two FBI agents come up with this idea that you could look at a crime scene, and if you did it expertly, you could tell something about the behavior and the psychology of the perpetrator. Um, now, there's a lot of reasons, you know, that, that this has a rocky start. The big idea that we can narrow your pool of suspects or people of interest by telling you a little bit more about them and hopefully, hopefully letting you kind of numb people out. Right. And the profilers don't go out and catch the guy. <laughs> the law enforcement oh, does a, that. Right. And that's a, you know, that's a fabrication of Hollywood. And, and they screw everything up, frankly, in the, in the, uh, more dramatic. But no, profilers um, don't jump on a plane and head out <laughs> to a mining and, and, you know, have guns and, you know, chase bad guys through the woods and kill them and slap the cuffs on them. They, that's not how it happens. So, so Thomas Harris got it wrong? Who's you know, uh, he, yeah, he, set the, he set the whole narrative on a wrong path. Criminal Minds has sort of corrupted it completely. Um, that's show business. But you have to say that... That the, is. That's Hollywood. The movie was tremendous. Uh, Silence yeah, of the Lambs. And, and, what movie are you talking Silence about? Silence of the Lambs. Oh, yeah, that's a fun, fun movie. Well, yeah, it, won, it swept the Academy Awards. won all five categories. And uh, what Anthony Hopkins was only on screen for 18 minutes. Still well, absolutely riveting. Uh, did you ever Absolutely. see Michael Mann's Manhunter, which is uh, the book before Silence? I I know it. I haven't seen it. Um, um, I, I know the title, which is the next worst thing. 
Uh, well, well uh, William Peterson is, uh, at the time was one of the top actors in the country. You know, he did uh, Once Upon a Time in America with a crappy ending. The one where he jumps in the garbage truck at the end? Uh, no. 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 <laughs> no, that was Alfred Hitchcock. No, no, no. It was, uh, James Woods, uh, I think, or Robert Dale jumps in the garbage yeah. truck at the end of the movie. Anyway, getting back to Shadow Man. I have a, uh, a personal, real fascination with this because one of your, this book of yours and my first serious true crime book of mine fit together almost like a prequel and a sequel. The book has, when they decided or when they put together this whole profiling concept and used it. Uh, Murder in the Family, which I wrote, was the first time an FBI profiler testified in a trial, which was Justin oh. Ray testifying in the trial of Kirby Anthony up in Alaska. And they took a lot of, they really had to go through the, no, an FBI profiler testified. So, uh, could almost go put in a two-pack, <laughs> not to be sure, or two-pack Shakur, but <laughs> you understand <laughs> I had to stretch for that one. <laughs> uh, you know, but what you're what you're talking about is, and part of the that that uh, here are these guys talking about psychology and crime scene analysis, and uh, it sounded vaguely uh, pop psychology type yeah. stuff. Um, cops, the, the boots on the ground, law enforcement, including. FBI agents and including J. Edgar Hoover himself thought this was black magic. Mm. Now this was voodoo. Now this was hokum. It was anything but law enforcement. And that they believed that, that cases were closed by talking to a lot of people, knocking on a lot of doors. Uh, then along come these two FBI agents. One is a, uh, an expert in criminal psychology the other one is one of the FBI's top crime scene analysts. Uh, they put their heads together and they come up with this idea, but they're kind of kept uh, quiet you know, under Hoover. He just didn't like the idea. So they were allowed to speak at the training academy on psychology mm -hmm. and on crime scene analysis, but they weren't allowed to do it together. Ah, that's kind of tricky. Well, yeah, but Hoover then dies. That was nice and of him at the time. Was yeah, he was, a he, he, by doing that, he opened the door. So, nice guy. But more progressive leadership came in, and they gave these two guys a little bit longer leash, and they were putting on these workshops for FBI agents who would drop in who were at the academy for various trainings. So, uh that pushback uh, not only played a role, a negative role in the development, it played a role in this case where the boots on the ground were kind of pushing back. And to this day, uh, that kind of uh, suspicion about profiling continues to play a role. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's really very interesting because we all think, all of us, ordinary TV watchers think, oh, gee, this is, this is a... Uh, yeah, this uh, is real common. This is real everyday law enforcement. Yeah, this is embraced. And when it isn't embraced, wholly, uh, you know, across the board. Yeah, but, I'll give you a perfect example. Even such thing as 
keeping the crime scene or the, you know the victims victimology pristine is a fairly new concept in many many places when sure. there there was a murder in my hometown in Walla Walla Washington by serial killer Robert Lee Yates Jr. a Spokane serial killer and before the body was given over to uh, any examination it was thoroughly washed and cleaned uh, yeah. and then turned over for examination <clears throat> i've mentioned yeah. this on the show many times but at that that kind of concept just boggles my mind Burl and I have a, a very favorite film from 1954 yep. called Them, about the giant ants mm-hmm. and running around in the desert. And uh, James Whitmore. James plays the Whitmore. Cult. When they first come, aco- come across the, the initial crime scene, they follow modern, standard investigative techniques. They don't touch the evidence with their bare hands. Um... Anything they disturb, they put back where it was. They call in the forensics to go and do the rest of the analysis. This is 1954. They were so ahead of, of what and was going I on where this. I lived in the 70s or 80s. This is one of the reasons why I love this movie, besides the, the, the amount of effort they put in making this, this science fiction slot. They... they Played the story as if it was real, and everything that happened would have happened if it was real. But yeah. I don't understand yeah. how that could be something known in the fifties that we still don't practice today. Well, they, it wasn't in in a sense it wasn't known in the fifties, right? I mean, there there was some delicacy around the crime scene, of course, but in the nineteen fifties, and in fact, when this story begins in 1973 the main forensic tools that that law enforcement had uh, were a, a kind of primitive blood typing yeah and fingerprints yeah. <laughs> and, and, and fingerprints and that was it and that yeah it was uh, the moulage the moulage group it, it was just uh, I, again, I think people are convinced by Hollywood that somehow we've always had these tools in our toolbox, but they don't. Uh, forensic, uh, I'm sorry, criminal profiling comes along, and it's really um, an advanced kind of, uh, not simultaneous, but in the category with uh, lie detectors, right? It's, it's, they're developing sciences that are coming along in the 60s and 70s. And then, of course, it's, it's decades before we have DNA and computer databases and things that we're using now. But yeah, As a matter of fact, in the, uh, in the uh, Kirby Anthony case, what I, my, what I mentioned, it was pre-DNA, and they had to do a whole song and dance to get what was called allotyping, which is a precursor mm-hmm. of DNA admitted as evidence. That wasn't yeah. easy either. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and in this case, there there is um, the use uh, at one point of uh, voice printing, mm. and it, it was in its infancy. They found a guy who sort of believed that it could be done at some university in the East Coast, 
and and they had some difficulty with that. They used him sort of as a to give them direction, the way you and I use Wikipedia. You know, we don't really trust it, but we'll see what it, if it points us in the right direction. Right. Um, and 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 voice printing was also in its infancy. And it's not completely there yet, but it's much better. Well, tell us a little bit about the crime itself here that you cover in Shadow Man and your investigation. It all begins in the summer of 1973. Uh, a family from Michigan is on a, a grand vacation, and they end up in a, a small, remote campground in Montana. And they, they're there for a couple of days, or mom and dad and five kids... Grandma and Grandpa are there. Uh, the time comes, they decide they're going to leave the next day, so they're having a great time that night together. Then four of the five kids all all cram themselves into a tent in the, in the middle of this campground and, and go to sleep. The next morning, the, one of the kids wakes up and notices that there's a, a big uh, rip in the tent and that their little sister, she's seven years old, her name is Susie Yeager, is missing. Oh. Uh, she, of course, immediately thinks, well, the tent split on its own and she went out and she's going to the bathroom or wandering around. In, in, in very quickly, they realize, though, after she alerts the family and everybody spills out, um, this this isn't just an accidental uh, wandering off by a kid. Something has happened, and so the the police or the sheriff's office is called. And when the first deputy arrives, he notices a a, a very faint trail of footprints going through the dewy grass out toward a parking area and that's it that's that's the only clue they have the tent has been sliced neatly in a kind of half moon Uh, somebody reached in there dragged her out and disappeared so uh, the fbi is required to come in in cases like that they did within hours actually and luckily, uh, we see that they have no evidence, they have no tips, they have no witnesses, consequently no suspects. And, and that's the way it is. For weeks and even months, uh, they have zero. Now they're very busy chasing down all kinds of crazy leads, but they, they end up with nothing, and it's a very frustrating thing to the lead detective and the parents, I'm sure. Investigators, so the, the, to everybody, you know, the parents are sick. They, the, there's not anybody. The whole community is sick and frightened. So, and you have to put it in. You have to put it in its context too. This is rural Montana. Uh, in 1973, it's not long since the Manson trial was over. Um, the Vietnam War is raging, and 
is the counterculture is raising. Mm-hmm. Um, Watergate is underway. Uh, you have you have this this rural community basically looking at the rest of the world and saying everything's going to hell. Yeah, and it's everybody else is going to hell, and we have nothing. You know, we can do nothing about this. So at that time, there wasn't um, a cultural concept of a serial killer. No. And so... Not even uh, the term. Not even the term. We didn't even have the the words yet for that. So the the local police are focusing on somebody from outside the community. A kind of a uh, cultural bias uh, as they, they are doing the investigation... Which, of course, is completely off base. Well, it's uh, it's a typical small town attitude. Uh, I'm I'm from the rural west myself, so I understand this. But anybody with small town experience understands that that we all think we know everybody. Right. We we think that that nothing could happen without us knowing without us knowing what it was and and that we know our neighbors well enough that we know what's in their heart and and of course they couldn't do that they're one of us right so yeah that was you know that was huge that that was part of this um and uh, you know in a lot of ways it it uh, stymied the investigation a little bit Although we see these these investigators going crazy to do this book, I had about a few a few more than thirteen thousand documents from the FBI. Oh my God! Uh, and that wasn't even the whole case file. Uh, what you see in those reports is that the the, the FBI, the local law enforcement. Are are doing everything. They're running out every ground ball. Uh, but like I say, uh, six seven months pass, and they've got nothing. You know, they've had people coming in and then going out. If they have a, a, a couple of uh, people of interest who come on to their radar. And then go their radar. Uh, some of them, many times, they come back. They go. Uh, they're doing everything they can. Uh, they're just not getting anywhere. Now, what strikes me as additionally unusual about this is that uh, a man calls an FBI regional office in Denver, claiming that he kidnapped the girl and he wants twenty-five grand in ransom. Yeah. And he, he gives them very specific instructions, and, and he's kind of dismissed. Uh, it's kind of dismissed as another hoaxer. During during that whole time, um, there, there were a lot of, uh, there was a ransom, so there were people trying to get the ransom. There were nutty clairvoyants who had visions and wanted to report them. And there were the 1970s equivalent of trolls. Oh, yeah. The people who were just going to do it to screw you up. And they, they kind of dismissed that. They investigated. Um, they went to the drop-off point. Uh, nothing happened. So 
so it was kind of dismissed. It's another phone call that comes later uh, from somebody who claims to have been that guy who made that ransom phone call uh, from the family and reveals information that only somebody had this girl or had been with this girl could know. It, it was it was a little characteristic in her, a little physical characteristic, that uh, when he said it, the mother knew it was her. The FBI, she hadn't, she'd forgotten to tell the FBI this little thing. Yeah, so even the FBI surprised at that moment, and suddenly they knew they had the abductor phone. What else happens that, that brings the police back to this case another yeah. another murder and uh, about eight months after little Susie Yeager goes missing um, a 19 year old waitress in a nearby town Manhattan Montana uh, goes missing uh, she has disappeared from a person who but law enforcement at that time at, at that moment in history, didn't put these two things together. Uh, you, you see, the, what we had here, uh, they didn't even think of these two cases, you know, minutes. Right. Yeah. It was that case over there, and now we have another uh, unrelated case, a 19-year-old waitress. They, they mount a sort of ever whitehalls. On uh, yeah, ten days after she disappears, they, they're on, um, among other places, on an abandoned ranch, uh, an abandoned homestead out in the middle of nowhere in Montana, and they find this waitress's car hidden in a dilapidated barn. Hmm. Uh, now they've got something. The search concentrates now on this abandoned homestead. And, and very soon, as they look closer, they begin to find uh, pulverized, charred bone shards yeah. just scattered all over the landscape. Yipes. So they, they literally get on hands and knees and collect all these pieces of bone uh, that all they can find. They ship Fairly soon after, uh, the Smithsonian gets back and says, yes, these are bones that belong to uh, a female teens, early 20s. Uh, and at that point, they thought, well, now we're, we've got the remains of this 19-year-old waitress named Sandra Smolligan. But, says the Smithsonian, there are also bones in these that are that belong to a much younger female under 10 years old. Uh-oh, here we go. Now these two crimes are are connected to in the minds of the investigators. They think now we have um, both Susie and Sandra's uh, remains, but they still have no evidence. They have no witnesses. They have nothing, and certainly they don't have a suspect or suspects. They don't know how many people are involved here. Uh, so once again, even after all that, they're flat-footed. They, they 
don't have anything. So there's uh, there's something in the past of the uh, uh, of the killer that they tie to these the ranches and the ranches in the area. What did uh, what did he do when he got out of high school? Well, uh, the, the, we should back up just a little bit, mm-hmm. and it's it's the the sort of the the dead end that they're at after that discovery of the bones uh, that is again still weighing on the FBI lead investigator and he goes back to Quantico for some you know normal scheduled training and he hears these two guys doing the work and and having no other options he goes to them and presents his case they think this is a good one to start so they put out their profile uh, as they is then as they begin narrowing down their pool uh, one of one of the many many people is a former marine i am sorry a, a marine who's not now serving uh, who who had been trained in communications and and the thing you're referring to was a phone call that was made to the family by someone who had tapped into a, a rural phone line and used a, a device like your phone repairman would use to make this call. Uh-huh. So that's uh, hiding his identity. In to see. Yeah, and, and not making a call from a normal phone, uh, but, but actually just tapping into a line someplace and making the call, which would make it very difficult to trace and he he won he had received many awards for his time in vietnam yeah he 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 was a good uh a good marine he didn't get in trouble he he was kind of known as a straight arrow he wouldn't go to uh, the bar he wouldn't uh, hang out with the girls there was he was he was a straight arrow a little odd but um uh, never gotten any trouble and in fact as he's transitioning back from vietnam to the states he's promoted to sergeant and and gets uh, a sort of a stellar report from his commanding a particular guy isn't uh, um, he doesn't fit the profile so to speak i mean that's a normal kind of a today but back then of course it wasn't he didn't fit the profile of a killer. These these cops and these agents were spending time with him and talking and interviewing. Here's this fairly articulate, uh, reasonably bright, uh, well spoken, uh, well you know, cleanly dressed uh, marine. Never had any trouble. Uh, when we go back to the thing we were talking about in the beginning, the, the boots on the ground talking to this guy says, he's not it. The profiler just saying, he's looking more and more like he's it. And there, there you yeah, have but he conflict. doesn't look like a killer. He doesn't act like some deranged no. maniac. And he denies right. that he was involved. He, he, at times, he's even offered to help them in any way he can. Self-employed, he, he, he doesn't fit. Uh, so uh, that there, there was a conflict between the, the people who were looking him in the eye 
and the people who were uh, analyzing what the psychology and the behavior of of this particular bad guy were would be, uh, they couldn't square that. So this particular guy that you're talking about is one of those who's on the radar, and then they talk to him and he's off the radar. No, yeah, no, he couldn't be. Him. He's too normal. Yeah, you know, yeah, he he they were, and they kept they kept arguing about that, and, and so at some point. Uh, the invest the agents in this case are uh, uh, decide they're going to do a light detector test, and they do, and he passes with flying colors. The profilers say that doesn't matter. He's if he's a psycho that we think what he is, then he that would be nothing. He of course he would pass. That was the belief at the time. So they gave him. He passed. Yeah. Ultimately, they give him a third lie test, a lie detection test in the form of a truth serum. And again, he passes. Yeah, so well, three times. for your enjoyment? Yeah, it was sodium amytal in this case, yeah. Now that's really fascinating because our friend uh, Fred Wolfson, who was the number one uh, polygraph guy in the entire United States and who polygraphed more people than anyone in the United States, stopped doing it. And he said, it's because it doesn't work. He says they, people can uh, can pass it. You yeah, there's a perfect example. He's absolutely right. And, and in that day, in 1973, there was a belief that uh, somebody who was true deviant could pass it simply because they weren't wired like everybody else, and yeah. that it was that wiring that a lie detector is is sensing. Today we know that's not true. Uh, uh, a psychopath and you have, well, a psychopath and Matt have, <laughs> have an equal chance of passing the lie detector test. I don't know about you, Burl, yeah. uh, but uh, we know that now. The problem is, uh, well, there are many problems. One is the machine might not work. Second, the, the questions might be bad. Third, the, in, the uh, examiner might be terrible. So there are a lot of things that can go wrong. Uh, in his case, uh, three times passing uh, defies uh, random chance. So I, 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 by the third time, the, the agent, in this case, Pete Dunbar, uh, was ever more consistent. He don't have the right guy. And you can understand why. Exactly. Exactly. And that's part of it. I, I think that if, if, I, if I were asked, and maybe this was on your list and I'm going to jump the gun here, but if I were asked, what, what do you take away from this? I, I think part of it is that um, we've always been fascinated by the criminal mind. You know, whenever something terrible happens or something, our rational minds want to put things back in order. Mm-hmm. They, they want to put sense to something that's senseless. Exactly. And that we have always been. We, from the dawn of man. The brain's we wanted, rational Exactly. Brain. We want to know what the threats are out there. Mm-hmm. We want to feel safe. We want to avoid death. That hasn't changed. Um, but... 
here we are right now in this in this particular case, probably and and profiling and some of the things that are we're seeing now advancements in in forensics. We're we're we we're our attitude is changing. We used to think bad guys were, you know, like flying monkeys or boogeymen <laughs> or Charles Manson, that we could see them coming. We're now in a period where we're seeing, thanks to people like profilers, that they're the people next door. Serial killers, probably, they have no. family. And Ted yeah. Bundy did not look like, uh, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, neither did Robert Lee Yates, a Desert Storm veteran, uh, five kids, gainfully employed, you know, probably teaching Bible study on the weekends, you know, like most of these guys did, and the last person you'd suspect. Well, yeah, BTK. Anyway, we can go down the list. Now, there's some freaks in there, too, Night Stalker, yeah. uh, but... Uh, I, I stumbled through, uh, I, I belong like you'd probably do too, to a lot of Facebook crime right. interest groups. And, and I remember stumbling into one one morning where some somebody, I remember these absorbers of true crime, one of them had posted a poll, if you could date any serial killer, which one would it be? <laughs> None, thank you. I was enraged. I, I was just enraged. Uh, I, and I put a, some snarky comment about, well, you know, be your last date. Yeah. Choose wisely. Yeah, but which person would you most want to be killed? Yeah, yeah. Who do you want splitting your throat? Uh, I want the one who puts the bullet in the brain quickly. <laughs> Thank you. One. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, what was the what was this gentleman's uh, pathology? What did he 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 kidnaps these people and then what? Well, he he took them out, presumably took them out to this a ranch and they they were another in these two young women's cases the difference. Um, he would. And I know you've got very gentle listeners, so I try not to be too. But he butchered them. He he cut them up. He burned their remains in a trash can, uh, about fifty-five gallon drum, of what was left, and scattered it over the landscape. So he he really had, uh, for you know, lack of a better term, done a good job at concealing the evidence. Of it. But Remember, it, it's not an, another phone call is made to the family, and this guy puts a little girl on the phone, and, uh, and this little girl's voice says, oh, mommy, he's a nice man. Uh-oh. The mother of this little girl doesn't recognize the voice. This is after her daughter went missing. Uh, but the, if, if this is our guy... And he has another girl. We can't afford to wait around and do more investigation. You know, do all the things we need to. We need to get involved now. So they they arrest a guy named David Meyerhofer, and uh, of course, the immediate immediate uh, And my evidence that that sickens me it would sicken you, um, and it would certainly sicken a lot of your listeners. Uh, but the 
suffice it to say that uh, as ghastly as it was, it proved his involvement. It was as certain as uh, a video of him killing them. It says, which is Montana, I'm coming to hang. The bad guy comes back and says, uh, well, could we get the death penalty table if I tell them about two other murders? Well, uh, the uh, offer is made, and and uh, he should know he was arrested that evening. He they make that on in at about two a.m. Sunday morning, early Sunday morning, and to with the the com- total purpose of getting him to confess to now four murders. Nobody's more shocked than they are. Uh, but he, they bring him in at 2 a.m., and what's in both Susie Yeager and Sandra Smolligan's murders, but also two murders five years before, when he was, actually, when he was still a senior in high school when they started. Wow. They had never chose, uh, they had never even classified them as, as murders to begin with. They, they had been explained away um, with, um, I don't know, uh, theories that, 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 that weren't about foul play. So uh, nobody had ever put those two old deaths of two teenage boys together with this. Uh, but he confessed to them. And the, you can see throughout this interrogation that it's, the transcript is reproduced in the book. Um, their intention to come back later in the day and do more interrogating or the next day and have days to interrogate him. But that night when they take him back to his cell, he uh, commits suicide. So there, there is no more interrogation, no more questioning, and no, no more analysis of, of him. And uh, so we are left with a lot of uh, a lot of questions about his crimes, and that's part of the story too. And that's what Burl knows is that serial killers leave in their wake a lot of questions. There's still people talking about Aunt Aunt Lily was uh, a Bundy victim. Now there's no no proof of that, but. It, it, they leave these yeah. um, myths and questions in their wake. So who was Big Al? <laughs> who was what? <laughs> Big Al, yeah. Uh, you know, that's an interesting thing, because as we think about uh, David Meyerhofer's uh, pathology, uh, we, we don't know where it came from. We don't know where that rage came from. Certainly, he doesn't fit our modern sort of ordinary view of serial killers because his victims were all different kinds. His weapons were all different kinds. The one thing that that linked them all was his rage. And we just don't know where that rage comes from. So uh, he had He had brothers and sisters. And um, uh, all of his brothers, and four of them, are still alive. One of them, a younger brother uh, named Alan, uh, later uh, proved to be a 
serial child rapist out in uh, Washington State. Well, and and uh, where does that so so how often does a ordinary family in rural Montana produce two psychopaths? That raises that a big question. Someplace. Well, they say there's two, there's two ways that you can be a psychopath. You can be born with a birth defect of the brain, devoid of the emotion chip, as Dr. Hare calls it. Or you can be made that way by uh, emotional, physical, and psychological abuse and head, coupled with head injuries. Right. So what the nature was, versus nurture. Yeah, it can be a, one or both together. So do we know right. from his brother what their childhood was like? Were they beaten? Were they abused? Do we There's know? There's no evidence of that. And I've talked to another sibling, uh, 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 otherwise normal sibling, who cannot come up with anything. There was no uh, abuse beyond spanking. There was no sexual abuse going on. Um, both of these guys had... Um, uh, were conflicted about homosexuality, both of them gay. Uh, uh, David, the older brother, the serial killer, uh, was seriously conflicted about it. The younger brother, I think it was just a, a factor in his pathology, but he's otherwise openly gay. And he's um, out. And he's out now. He did 30 years in a Washington in the Washington State Prison System in my hometown. Yes, of Walla Walla, Washington. Yeah, he he was, um, and then now he is out. He's a, he's the highest level of of sex offender uh, in Washington under Washington law. But he lives in a small town. Um, I spent, oh, two or three long interviews with him. Uh, there's, there's, of course, he's going to lie to me, right? He's, gonna, he's going to manipulate me the way socio and psychopaths do. Uh, but his sister is a delightful woman who kind of echoed the same things, that there, there were, there are no... Now, you've got people here who have been thinking about this for 50 years mm -hmm. very, very intensively, and they see no, no thing that would have caused their family to create these two psychopaths. It might be right that, that when they just got, they hit the lottery, and two, two seriously evil people popped up in their family, or something was going on. And I believe something was going on, but we don't know no, what it, it was. is. Uh, in the, uh, the case of uh, uh, Paul St. Pierre, and, which I did a book on, uh, it was originally called Head in the Bucket, before we came up with the bucket <laughs> in the river. Uh, it's called uh, Headshot, was the title. I almost forgot the title of my own book. Uh, you had two psychopaths. One was uh, apparently born that way. There was nothing they could explain in the family why that son was like that when no one else in the family was. And mm -hmm. then you had in the Webb family uh, where the this kid had had his head run, had been run over 
his head had been run over by the car. And when they realized they actually ran over the kid's head, they backed the car up and ran over him again. Oh, God. So he had his mask. That's, you know, he seems okay now. Uh, you know, he had a head injury. And uh, uh, that seems to have been the, uh, the physiological uh, trigger. Sure. And uh, so you had these two guys that both became, had psychopathic behavior, uh, became best friends, as one might imagine. Yeah. But they for for two different two different origins, one was from uh, a head injury, and the other was I guess you might call it the genetic lottery. Well, in uh, my my book, The Darkest Night, which is really my my first venture into true crime, my uh, sort of informal advisor was a guy named Dr. John McDonald, and he's the guy who came up with the McDonald Triad of, of common uh, child. Uh, of people who eventually become serial killers. I think most of that's been debunked now, but he came up with it and it was very real at the time. In that particular case, I had one family who had two separately, uh, two separate sons who were rapists and killers. There was another family down the block who had two separate sons who had been who had rapists and killers then they crossed their streams when one of those sons from one family hooked up with the son from another and then they go out marauding um, and and McDonald said he had never seen a family produce independently two psychopaths Hmm. Sometimes brothers get together and do things, but these guys weren't operating together. They were just all off on their own things. That's really rare. We'd never seen that once, but here were two like that, and they connect. So uh, I, I just think you're right. I think there are a lot of this to this psychopathy, but uh, I'm not a forensic psychologist. I try to know a lot about that. But even the forensic psychologists that I have talked to, like like Catherine Ramsland, mm -hmm. uh, like Mark Thackerick, who wrote the afterword for Shadow Man, um, they don't know. They don't know in this case. There's nothing that stands out. Yeah, I did a lot of talking to Dr. Robert Hare, who helped me with uh, Murder in the Family. And uh, it's the same thing. You know, <laughs> this... There's a lot of stuff you can learn, and then you get to a point where, damned if I know. Yeah, I think so. I think you're absolutely correct. And I think that in this particular case, the things bondly that our two profilers, um, Howard Beaton and Pat Mullaney, would have come out to Montana and spent time with him and done a serious psychological stuff of that. But the fact that he... he his life ended before they could do that. Yeah, he cheated us. That book well, is no. Shadow Man. Besides uh, suicides against the law, I hope he arrested him. Ron, thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Always a pleasure. Have fun. All right.